What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. We're talking about finance. We're talking about business. And of course, we're talking about generational wealth. Now let's introduce today's guest. We're talking to this brother, Jason Hardwick. He's a divisional director, operations and patient experience, University of Florida Health in Jacksonville. This brother has a bachelor of science in business economics. I just got his bio, so I realized he just received that from FAMU, same school I went to. This brother is like on 10 boards. This brother has a master's in health administration. This brother has the FACHE, which is the gold standard board certification in health management for, you, for those not to know. That's the fellow of the American College and Healthcare Executive. We dropping him on you today. And his brother has a CPXP, which is a certified in the patient experience as a professional. But it wasn't all sweet. So that's why with Black Men Sundays, we normally start out with the finance and the money. I want to take it back to the beginning because I heard you, you did some time in prison, brother. So let's start right there. First off, welcome to Black Men Sundays, brother. How you doing? Great. How about yourself? Oh, I can't complain, man. I got a, I got a brother on here on like 10 boards on Black Men Sundays. But like I said, before we get to all that, before we get to the money, you know, just in doing my research, I understand you spent some time in prison. So I just want to know how you overcame that to get board certified and to get all these credentials. So uh, just so my, my uh, stint in prison, I did a, about 12 months in a federal prison camp in uh, Pensacola, Florida. I was actually transferred from well, total, I did about 11 and a half months in federal prison for bank fraud uh, back in 1999. In 1996, at the age of 20, uh, I was a sophomore at Florida a University. I engaged in a uh, scheme, if you will, to defraud the banking system by uh, creating worthless checks that were cashed for a significant amount of money, which resulted in me having to do time in prison. I'll tell you one of the interesting things about it is, although I was indicted in 1996, the judge permitted me to complete school. Judge Stafford, I, I definitely appreciate him. Uh, and even though I was young, I didn't even understand the magnitude of what he was doing for me. He allowed me to stay out and complete school. So I didn't begin to serve my sentence until January of 2000, although I was indicted in uh, April of 1996. You were able to finish your degree Let's talk about that that magnitude for a minute. I kind of want to address that because you said basically you were able to finish that. So talk about the importance of that. So uh, I think it was significantly important because as I entered the prison system, uh, I realized a lot of uh, individuals didn't have the opportunity that was afforded to me. Judge Stafford basically told me, quite frankly, I want you to finish school. You go finish school and you come back and see me. And basically he was going to sentence me, which he did. Uh, I think uh, in terms of my career, my ability to uh, come out of prison and become gainfully employed, that was significantly impactful uh, for me to have a degree. At the time, I had my bachelor's in business economics, um, and it afforded me an opportunity to actually start my employment here at U of Health Jacksonville. Uh, I tell you, having an employer, I, I contributed three main factors. One, my personal drive. Uh, if I didn't have that drive and determination, I could have easily gone on to do some other things, going back to the, you know, do it to the criminal element or even some uh, less um, jobs that were not necessarily beneath me, but jobs that I, sh I didn't have to do. 
Uh, the other piece is having an employer that was willing to onboard me, despite the fact that I had a background, despite the fact that I had a felony at the time. Now, I didn't come in as a director. I came in uh, in an entry-level role at the time. But even coming in in an entry-level role in our financial assistance department at the time uh, was still monumental for me and even comparing others who were uh, in similar situations as mine where they couldn't gain employment such as I did. Um, having a felony and at the same time being on supervised release with a uh, U.S. probation system. So I think, I, I believe it's me, uh, my employer, as well as God, you know, actually ordering my steps to kind of guide me to where I ended up here at U of Health. Yeah, that's definitely amazing because, you know, when I think of UF Health, man, you know, it, you're not just bringing anybody in. So you had to be a special person. But let's talk about that. You have a business uh, economics degree from FAMU. So you go from FAMU uh, basically to the, the UF health environment. So just talk about, you know, your first couple years in business there and, you know, how you were able to elevate up to a division director. So I started out, as I stated, an entry-level role in our financial assistance department as an eligibility specialist. And um, I've always been somewhat competitive. I'm not much of an athlete, but even in my academics, I've always been competitive and whatever I engaged in, even when um, I did the illegal activities, I was always trying to be the best, always trying to be number one. So when I came to the hospital, I quickly realized that, hey, this is an opportunity. I'm like, this company is giving me an opportunity to come in and work. I'm going to take it over. Uh, and that's just was my approach. Uh, within the first two years, I was promoted from eligibility specialist. I was promoted to a quality control analyst, which at that time I had responsibility and oversight for the department, making sure that our, the uh, finances that we completed were accurate and were eligible for audit. I was later promoted to patient financial services supervisor, patient financial services manager, and then division director patient access, which is a financial role. We call it patient access, but it's the front end registration role. Subsequent to that, I was promoted to division director of patient experience and patient access, and now currently division director of operations and patient experience. And I'll tell you, throughout my journey, some of the most significant things that stood out was that I just don't say no in terms of taking all responsibilities. When I was originally hired, uh, the young lady that trained me at the time, she told me, she was like, Jason, we had quality, quality metrics we had to meet. She said, those quality metrics aren't realistic. You'll never hit them. The productivity method metrics. She said, you'll never hit them. And, and fortunately, I was stubborn enough to, to uh, say, no, that's not going to be me. And I excelled in both areas, which resulted in my ability to get promoted. Uh, I think one of the most unique parts of my career here at UF Health is during the time that I was patient financial services manager. At that time, I would go to our finance meetings and um, I was the only African-American attending those meetings. It was a group of about eight or nine of us. And I remember at one point we were having a discussion about whether or not we were going to continue to partner with this one agency that was doing work for us. This agency was responsible for roughly about uh, $70, 80000000 million of revenue annually coming into the organization. And um, our CFO at the time was thinking about disengaging that relationship. And I asked a question uh, about looking at some of the financials. And at that time, I was asked to bring back a recommendation. I took on that account. And basically what I did, uh, I assertively worked through those numbers, worked with the team, and I came back with a recommendation that we would continue to partner with them. As a result of that, 
I took on two more agencies. So I'm a manager and I'm pretty much functioning at the level of a director, but I'm not getting compensated for it. But I recognize the opportunity in taking on that additional work, which gave me the experience so that at some point later I could come back and compete for uh, other roles. But subsequent to that, one of our directors of patient access decided to leave the organization in very short notice. I was asked by our CFO, uh, basically based on my prior work, I was asked by our CFO to take on that role. Um, and at that time we were going through a system change, electronic medical record six system change. And when we get, went through that change, I was training for the back end. I ended up taking on the front end, which is the patient access component and having to train over uh, 200 employees put together the whole training uh, algorithms, as well as come up on that system, which was responsible for about 300 million annual in revenue coming into the hospital. And so uh, I think basically me taking on those tasks that were not, you know, assigned to me and things that I could have simply said, no, you don't even pay me for this, gave me that opportunity. It showed, gave me an opportunity to show my skill sets, which also led to my uh, future promotions. Now, I'll tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy task taking on that role in the middle of a transition, but uh, we toughed through it and, um, and now, heck, that was what, now 10 years ago. Let's keep it in the finance for a minute, you know, because you're talking about, you know, the monies that you were handling at UF Health, but let's talk about on a personal level, how were you, you know, setting yourself up for retirement? You doing any stocks and bond investing? You do any crypto? Let's talk about that. This is Black Men's Sundays. Let's go. So, yeah. So for myself, uh, a huge part of my, uh, so I do do some stocks and investments. Uh, I take advantage of my company's 401k. I maximize, there, there's a mansion, they do a mansion and I maximize that amount. Another part of my um, retirement is uh, I am, my goal is to position myself to do some consulting in healthcare. Consulting is a very lucrative business. I'm, I'm responsible for quite bring, onboarding quite a few different agencies and individuals who come in and do consulting for the organization for a variety of different reasons. But I think a part of what I'd like to see is a part of my retirement as well. I don't, I don't perceive myself like just stop working um, at any point. I, I, I believe I'll continue to engage in the healthcare realm. I really like what I do. I enjoy what I do. And a part of my retirement is one to do to the investing that I do now, put into, uh, I invest quite a bit of my earnings into salaries. Fortunately, I make, uh, I would say a very uh, fair salary. Uh, and that salary allows me the ability to save quite a bit of my earnings. But I think long-term, I'd like to do some consulting and stay in the um, healthcare arena on a consulting basis once I reach a point of retirement. And as far as uh, investing, you do any stocks? And if so, what stocks are you pretty lucrative in? So uh, I do so I do some stocks. Um, I look at a lot of the, uh, because I'm in healthcare, I follow some of the healthcare uh, giants like Stryker uh, is, is a big one. Um, but most, a lot of the uh, technological um, agencies is where I kind of see opportunities. Reason being, I work in healthcare and healthcare equipment. Uh, I have oversight for biomed and that's one of our most heftiest contracts and that's just managing the equipment. But typically your, your equipment like a CT or MRI machine, that equipment ages out very quickly. And if you, and if you, when you want healthcare, you want the latest and the greatest technology. So even though the equipment may still work, it may still function if something new comes out, that's what people want. And that's where I think it, investing in those types of agencies, uh, those types of organizations 
you're not going to be able to go wrong. Of course, like you have to watch and make sure that those companies, uh, you want to follow their leadership and make sure that they're not doing uh, unethical things, unethical practices in healthcare. You'll see that quite frequently where they, you know, improper billing and things of that nature can lead to disasters for companies as well as their leadership. So you kind of got to watch that as well, just because a company's doing well, you kind of want to keep a good eye on uh, how they're operating, who's leading and running those organizations. I just want to back up real quick because under your title, Division Director of Operations and Patient Experience. So just break that down for our audience. I broke down your degrees and your credentials, but I didn't break that down if you don't mind. Yes. So operations includes our support services. So I have oversight. We have two hospitals here in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, UF Health Jacksonville and UF Health North. So I have oversight for support services at both of those or both of those hospitals. And that encompasses security, parking, transportation, environmental services, food and nutrition, biomed, pastoral care, patient relations, uh, linen, and I am probably leaving something out, but uh, that's kind of the gist of it. For the most part, the way I describe it, if, if I'm given a real short version, if it's non-clinical, typically it falls under me. If it's non-clinical or non-finance, uh, it, for the most part, reports up to me. So I kind of want to transition a little bit because, you know, this is Black Men's Sunday. We're trying to accumulate generational wealth for Black men. So in your opinion, in the healthcare industry for the brothers that are listening that may not even be thinking about your industry just tell them about what's how it's lucrative and how black men can gain uh, generational wealth in the healthcare system so i think from from an earnest perspective in many cases even myself uh, i think many people don't recognize all the career opportunities if one is going to work in corporate america i mean i know there's a lot of people that want to do you know they're they're more of an entrepreneur more of an entrepreneurial goals but if you're going to work in corporate america i think hospitals and healthcare is very lucrative even that all of my administrators are pretty much make six figures or better and that's everywhere from my director of security biomed pastoral care patient relations my director of food and nutrition services my director of environmental services, which includes cleaning and uh, infection prevention throughout the hospital. So you can make a very good living for yourself working in the hospital with even some of the most, I guess, unassuming uh, tasks and leadership roles. What I would encourage uh, an individual who would like to get into healthcare to do is uh, kind of do your research, look in the hospital. I love what I do. The operations component, I'm not very much into the clinical component. I have no clinical background, but I'm responsible for keeping the hospital going every day, day in and day out. They can't do procedures. They can't take care of patients without me and the areas that I oversee. We're responsible. We have over about 30,000 inpatient visits annually and about 120,000 emergency room visits annually. And those are all, that's not unique people, but that's, that's a, a wealth of healthcare and it takes a lot of people and a lot of pieces to go into it to make that work. But um, I encourage individuals to seek out careers in healthcare. My, my original goal was to be a stockbroker. And so I kind of stumbled upon uh, healthcare just because I needed a job. You know, I was being released from prison at the time and I needed a job. And this is where, uh, fortunately, I landed an opportunity. And, um, and within that, I took advantage of it. 
over the past 20 years to kind of continue to work hard and grow. And I've had very great leaders that afforded me opportunities to grow. I'll tell you, um, one of the other unique things is in the healthcare realm, you establish yourself, you do a great job, you build a good resume. There's a lot of headhunters out there, if you will. There's a lot of recruiters out there that will come after you and they offer you very lucrative salaries, lucrative opportunities to move and grow with different organizations. Many organizations, they want that top talent. It's just like the league or anything else. Everybody wants to star player. And if you prove yourself, you're always going to have employment opportunities, uh, especially if you're willing to move, relocate, the opportunities uh, will be there. And I know you said you're not on the clinical side. I just have to ask you this because, you know, there's a lot of brothers out there that I asked them once the last time you had a doctor visit, they don't remember or it's been at least five years. Um, what's your advice to the brothers that say, listen, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm drinking these um, juices and things of that sort. So I, and I'm taking my vitamins, so I should be fine. What's your advice to brothers out here? I, I tell brothers, uh, we, we take our cars in for a checkup. If you own a vehicle every now and then you take it in to get an oil change. If you don't get that oil change, it will even, and you don't get those other systems routinely checked. Eventually it's going to break down on you and then you're going to have to find a substitute, uh, which if you've got resources, you can go rent a car. You just go buy another one, right? The unfortunate reality with our body, with the, the one vessel that we're given at birth, is you don't get to trade it in. Now, yeah, they have, you can have transplants and things of that nature, but holistically, we only get that one body. So if you don't get those oil changes like you're supposed to, they're, they're, and the fortunate thing we have now is we pretty much got a manual for how we can, uh, the information is readily available, how we can better take care of ourselves in terms of diet, exercise. And just those routine visits, you can't do it by yourself. You need a, a clinician who you can partner with, not a clinician that uh, just kind of uh, just going to tell you what to do. You need a clinician that has a vested interest in you and your quality of life and not somebody who's just going to check the box. Uh, I'll tell you, statistically, when we look at it, the Unfortunately, just our African-American community as a whole, and then even the men is, is much worse. Uh, I don't have the stats, but we have some uh, quite a few initiatives here in our organization that are just focused on trying to improve the overall health and well-being of African-Americans. And as an organization, we benefit from it because the way we're reimbursed is we're not reimbursed by how many patients we see. We're reimbursed by the quality outcomes. That's the way the, or, the uh, healthcare industry is going. So all hospitals, everybody's kind of geared toward trying to improve in the health of their communities because if you can reduce the um, those emergency visits, those emergency visits that come from uh, you not going to those routine doctor's visits and all of it. You've got this little pain and that little pain turns out to be a stroke that you've been having for two weeks or a heart attack that's just been building up because you don't go to the doctor. I, I talked to a gentleman the other day and he told me he hadn't been to the doctor in like 50 years and he was proud of it. And I mean, if you don't, and, and that the best thing, I'm, I'm a bit of a little car fanatic, but if you don't check on that car, if you never raise the hood, eventually something's going to go wrong. And when it goes, normally it's too late. It's no longer preventive. Now you're going to recovery. And like I say, as a human being, our, our, our mind, our body is the most valuable asset we have. And I just think you just can't go without maintaining it. And, and I kind of hit on that as well. 
mental health is just as valuable. And I know historically many African-Americans kind of stray away from um, counseling and things of that nature, but I pray every day just for a sane mind, just for a clear mind, because I engage so many folks at the hospital that just, they go from one day having it all, having the American dream, and then they just walk away from it because of a mental breakdown. Literally, they just walk away from their homes, their families, their, everything that they have. And now they're just, you know, a product of our community, living on the streets, in and out of the hospital. And sadly, our uh, society, the United States, doesn't do a good job of uh, taking care of our own who have mental health issues. Typically, the fix is, because, I mean, we can't, if I just say, hey, you know, Corey's going crazy, and they lock you up, but you, there may not be nothing wrong with you. So we try to give people their rights, but there are cases where people, somebody needs to intervene. And typically, an intervention comes by when somebody breaks the law. Then you end up in the penal system, and the penal system is not designed to manage or take care of mental health. So I, I think um, I just can't stress it enough. Go see your doctor. I mean, but but definitely go see. You want to have a relationship with that provider where you're just not a patient. You want a provider that knows you, or or is willing to kind of have that relationship, and and this and not just hand out orders understand the dynamics of your your lifestyle i mean yeah you could you can exercise you can eat right and all those other good things but if you've got you know if you're pre-diabetic and don't know it you know all of those things may not you may not even be working on you know that preventive piece so i think it's just just vitally important uh, to have somebody who's an expert in that field examining you on a regular basis Interesting. And you mentioned mental health. Uh, that's one thing we've talked about on one other show. We had a lieutenant from a Lake County Sheriff up north, just north of uh, Orlando spoke to us. And, and he said, basically, with mental health, Florida's 50th in mental health spending. So, I mean, there you go right there. But let's talk about mental health for a minute, because I feel like, like I said, we've only talked about mental health on one other show. You know, a lot of a lot of black men, including myself, were raised, you know, what? you just put your boots on, strap them up and keep it going. You'll be fine. Just have mental toughness. That's what I was taught. But a lot of a lot of brothers out here that have mental health issues and don't know that it's it's a little more than just having to strap the boots up and toughen it out. Talk about that a little bit. I, I totally agree. Uh, I'm, I'm one of them. And even I would probably say 10, 15 years ago. I had the same ideology. It's like, hey, man, tough through it, man. Hey, we black dudes, like all the stuff we done went through, like, hey, you can get through it. Uh, and, and I think it's just far from the case. Fortunately, working in the healthcare arena, I've gotten the ability to experience those individuals who've taken advantage of, uh, you know, counseling and different mental health services and watching them kind of, you know, get back to a state that was much more desirable. Um, I've also seen those individuals who just didn't get the assistance or the help that they've needed and watch them spiral go down. Uh, working at the hospital for, for such a long time, I've gotten to see people age. They've watched me age. Some of the folks here, they're like, hey, I remember you a little kid when you first got here. But the same for me, I've watched some patients progress and get better. I've also watched patients over time digress ultimately to their demise. And in some cases, look, and even without a clinical mindset, I know that there were solutions that could have been better taken advantage of um, just based on my experience. And some folks just just simply do not know. 
because they don't have those checkups. And even if, and that's where I think truly partnering with the provider, your primary care provider, having a partnership with them, that's, they're going to get to know you and they're going to know, hey, Jason, this is probably a good time for me to refer you to a counselor. You're doing something different. Your body is, uh, you know, reacting differently because even that, that mental health impacts our, our, our actually physical health as well. As those numbers change, your cholesterol levels, your blood pressure levels, all of those, those numbers tell a story. And if you're doing, if you're still, ex, you know, if you haven't changed these other pieces, it's going to leave that provider. There's something else going on here that we've got to address. If we're still, you know, we're still working out, we're eating right. Why are these numbers fluctuating? What's going on here? Um, and I, so I think just that relationship is just so impactful to have. Okay. And also, as I'm looking over your bio, like I introed in the beginning, you're oh, you're in a lot of boards, a lot of boards. And, you know, it says that you give back to your community by developing others for professional and personal growth. Let's talk about some of that. So uh, one, I believe, I truly sincerely believe, uh, I think there's a scripture to whom much is given, uh, much is required. I've been, I'm extremely blessed. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely blessed. Uh, just based on my story, I'm extremely blessed to be where I am, considering where I've come from. And so I do believe in giving back to others. And one of the most important things is, is trying to open a door for others uh, and not just youth. I mean, you know, in many cases, we focus on uh, the young people in our community. And I think they're important. And I do focus on the young, but there's also some of us middle age, 30 years, 40 years old, and, and we go through a crisis. We do something crazy. We end up in a situation, uh, what have you, where... Uh, now we're in need of a job. You know, we, we may have been displaced or whatever. So I, my goal is to try to help individuals in the community connect wherever that may be. And my, my presence on those different committees and councils and boards is to be in that community, to be the face, to be the voice for so many um, so that I can't, so those individuals can get to me. I mean, if I just go to work and go home, I'm only going to see a certain group of people. Right. I'm only going to see my coworkers. I'm only going to see my family, only going to see my neighbors. So my, my goal is to be involved as much as possible so that I can be accessible. I'm fortunate in my role where I can help uh, create careers for individuals, whether, like I said, whether it's a young person coming out of college or a young person coming out of high school or whether it's somebody who's, you know, maybe they've got to make a huge they've made a huge career change, a company shut down or whatever. So I'm in a place where I can help individuals. Um, I can also I give I share my story as often as possible because so many people feel like uh, they just you know things aren't going the way they desire think nothing went the way I thought it was going to go uh, but that doesn't mean give up you know I spoke with a young man the other day who's got two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree and he's um he's bartending and um because from his perspective, I think he kind of thought he was going to get out of school and go straight into like a senior type executive role similar to mine and just kind of helping him understand that maybe that's not just realistic for what you're trying to do, but also just showing him, you know, my path and how I had to grind, so to speak, to get to where I am and just trying to give him some guidance. Um, I can think of another young man. I remember I spoke to him. He had a, he was a, attended a Florida A&M and he had dropped out due to some financial things uh, with his family, he didn't have the financial support. And he came to me because his uncle worked for me and he needed a job. 
And I told him, I said, uh, I'm not going to give you a job. I said, if you go out and apply, and one of my managers at the time, I said, if any one of my managers hire you, I'm not going to speak against you. I said, but I'm not. I had the power to simply say, hey, hire this young man, put him to work. But I told him I wasn't going to do that. I told him, this is what's going to happen if I do that. I said, you're going to start working here. I said, and the salary was probably about $35,000 a year, but you were working in the emergency department. You can pretty much work unlimited overtime. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. If you've got the flexibility, you can almost write your ticket. You can make $70,000, $80,000 a year at this time, probably easily with overtime, because it's just, if you can stay woke, you can come to work. And I told him, I said, that's probably what you're going to do. I said, you're going to get an apartment. And then I jokingly told him, I said, then you're going to get a Camaro. I said, you're going to have bills. And I said, you're going to get a girlfriend. I said, you're going to be stuck in this lifestyle. And this lifestyle is going to be built around you working 50, 60 hours a week to maintain this lifestyle, but you're going to be stuck in it. I said, because the degree doesn't make you smart. At least in this room, that degree raises your ceiling. You get a bachelor's, you can go to the second floor. You get a master's, you can possibly go to the third floor. You get a PhD, you can go to the fourth floor. I said, you don't have either one. So your ceiling is right here. And I said, you can work here for the next 30, 40 years, but I don't imagine that you want to do this entry-level job for the next 30, however long you're going to work. And he kind of looked down, because um, he kind of looked to me, his uncle, I think, had told him, hey, just go to Jason. Jason will hook you up. And I told him, I said, you should probably go back to school and finish your degree. And uh, he walked out of my office with his head down and he called me probably. Uh, and, I, and I basically told him, I said, I don't have the answer for you on how you're going to make it happen. But I said, you got to go back to Tallahassee and finish what you started. Like, I get it. Your family's not there anymore. I don't know exactly. Can't recall everything that the challenges that he went through. But basically, he didn't have that financial support. Long story short, he went back to Tallahassee, slept on somebody's sofa, finished school, came back. And we talked somewhere in between then, and I knew he'd gone back to school. He had let reach back out to me when he graduated. And the funny thing, me and my wife, uh, my wife wanted to buy a new vehicle, so I told her to call the credit union and get everything set up, and then we'd go out, you know, have the check ready so we could just go out and buy the vehicle. And interestingly enough, he was the guy that she was talking to, and he said, "By chance, are you married? It's Mr. Hart with Jason Hart, your husband." And then he shared with my wife the whole story how he uh thought I was really being mean and harsh because I I could have I could have just given him a job and he'd probably still be working here right now but he'd still be working 60 70 hours a week to you know make that comfortable living for himself and I'm sure things would have changed you get kids you get a wife or whatever you decide to do and then you don't have that flexibility anymore so I mean that's that's my goal it's not I don't have a blueprint I don't have a book it's just sharing my story sharing my experiences wherever I can. And then there are times when, yeah, that's that's the solution to just give somebody an opportunity who otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity. I'll tell you an interesting story. I met a young, this was another young man that was, that was referred to me. He had the same exact situation I had. He had a bachelor's degree from, um, what is that, Norfolk State University. He was convicted of bank fraud. He had done a little less to think about six months in federal prison. He had gotten out and he had the same probation officer I had. And he needed a job. And I told him I would hire him. And the probation officer wouldn't let him work for, him, for me uh, because he said the role involved finance at the time, the department that I was over. And he had a bank fraud background. And I said, and I wrote a letter on his behalf uh, saying that I would, you know, 
basically, I'm a watcher. And I've told him, I said, if you come in here and you do some crime on my watch, I said, it's going to be hell. The least thing you're going to be worried about is the feds. I said, I'm going to be hell on you. <laughs> like, But uh, unfortunately, they, they wouldn't allow him to work for me because of the job that he would have been doing. But the, the blessing and all of it was it pushed him to uh, follow his passion. His passion was to be a photographer and his photography business like took off. He was trying to like follow the blueprint, get out, get a job and, you know, this blueprint that they have for you. And because they wouldn't allow him, I think it was just a blessing in it because uh, he ended up taking off with his photography business and he didn't even need me. But, uh, but it's just interesting how I encounter individuals and I'm just, I just try to be open to help wherever I can. Someone, you know, with the background you have, like, you know, why should I try so hard? No one's going to hire me. Once I check, do you have a felony box that says yes? Um, I don't have a chance. Well, a lot of brothers give up. What advice would you give to brothers out there that are in that situation right now? So uh, it's easy to look at a piece of paper uh, or now it's no longer paper applications. It's easy to look at an electronic filter and, and say, no, I'm not going to hire Corey. Look at this. Oh, my God. Why would I take that on? Um, in many cases, I'm sure some of these systems probably exclude you right off the top and, and you never get to that hiring manager. I strongly recommend that that they network. And even though in many cases you may not be in that circle of uh, individuals who can just, you know, hire, hire who has those uh, decision making uh, powers, but. You've got to be creative. I'll tell you, um, my first when I first got out of prison, the first job I had was not at the hospital. It was at Merrill Lynch. And there's a Merrill Lynch campus here, big camp, big facility. It's got four buildings. And when I was in high school, I was in a program called En-ROADS. And so I knew the layout of the buildings. And I would gotten out of prison and I was going around filling out jobs. I was doing actual job applications. And I'd gone into several like Fortune 500 type companies. And I'm just like, just hire me. Give me the basic, the most minimum job you got. I'll take this place over if you give me a shot. And I'll fill out the applications, go through the interviews. And then I get to the end and it's like, oh, we didn't know. Oh, you got a felony. Oh, we can't hire you. And so what happened uh, at Merrill Lynch, I, I was driving uh, and I remember I had on a suit because every day I would just get up to go look for a job. And uh, I was driving my brother's old 1975 Chevy Caprice and no air conditioning in it. And, and I mean, it's hot. So I'm dripping sweat every time I, I got to be driving 100 miles an hour to stay cool in this thing. And I pulled up to Merrill Lynch and I and you have to have a badge to get in the building. But there's an entrance at the time for like the executives. They wouldn't make all the executives like pull out uh, their badge. The security officer would just kind of open the door for them. And they were literally walking up the sidewalk. I jumped out of the car, threw on my jacket, my, uh, my, my jacket and my suit. And I got it, I kind of walked behind the pack. And as they got to the door, I just blended into the pack and walked through the door. So I kind of, I said, hey, I went to prison for doing conniving things. Like I can use some connive, some of this, these skills to maybe get a job. So I walked in the door and I knew where the human resources department was. I literally, as I got down the hallway, I don't know what I'm about to tell these people. But the lady stepped in the hallway, and I know this had to be God. I'm, I'm, I'm not sacro-religious, but I do believe in a higher power, and I do believe in God. And the lady, she said, you're here to take the test. I said, yes, ma'am, absolutely. And uh, she said, come on, we're about to get started. And I walked in, and there was a room of probably about 10 or 11 people taking and about to take a test. I don't even know what this test is. So I sit down, she hands me the test, 
And believe it or not, it was only on economic principles. Now I'm a business econ grad. I just graduated a year ago. Like all this stuff is like in my head, like my middle name, I know it. I run through the test and when I looked up, everybody else was still looking down, taking a test. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like maybe I did it wrong. So I checked my answers again and I looked up and by this time the lady's coming back in the door and she kind of whispers for me to come over. So I hand her the test and said, well, I'm done. She says, you know, interestingly, Jason, I don't have you on the list. I said, well, I don't know what happened. And she said, well, I don't have your application. She handed me the application. And she said, well, you go ahead and fill this out while I grade your test. I went to complete the application. Now I'm like, man, I got to, uh, I'm gonna have to answer this question. She came back, she waited for me to come back. And, and now people, one or two at a time, are finishing the test. And she says, well, you did exceptionally well. She says, Bob wants to interview you now. Do you have time? And I said, sure. Now, I still have the application. I put it in my attache case, so I didn't give it to her. So I'm not about to deal with that yet. I go over to building four, interview, and I ran the interview. I mean, I out-talked him. I didn't let him ask me questions. I more or less asked him questions as if I was going to. I had like I had to make a decision whether I was going to work for them. I left by the time I got back to the building. Now I've got a pass to get from building to building. <laughs> So I go back to the other building and she says, Bob wants to offer you a job. And I'll never forget. I think they were going to pay me. It was $25,000 a year, I think like 12 bucks an hour or something like that. And I said, well, I've got to talk it through with my family and I'll get back with you. And really, I'm just trying to buy myself time with this application. So I walk out, I go home and I call her a few hours later. I still haven't given the application. And she say, because uh, I called her back. She didn't answer. I called her a few times. I finally got her. I said, yeah, I talked it over with my family. I'm gonna, I can start Monday in the training class. So I get to work Monday. They give me all the W-2 forms. I complete those forms. Everything's a go. I still never gave them an application. I was working there for about two months before she came back and said, hey, you never gave me that application. And I was like, seriously? She says, as a matter of fact, I remember you stuck it in the attache case. So I go ahead. I fill it out. I give it to her. And I'm like, well, I'm here now. You might as well put it on there. Give it to her. Probably a week later, she calls me. And she said, we got to talk about your application. Now, I've got an order. I was a 401k benefit specialist, uh, but I had to sit for the Series 7, Series 8 exams. And so, which I wouldn't have been able to do it because I was on supervised release. I knew the SEC would reject my application. She, um, we talked about what had happened. She told me to draft up a summary of what happened in terms of my arrest and my conviction. And she said, well, right now, the only people that need to know about this is you, me. And she said her boss at a time will have to address it. I worked there for just about 11 months before uh, it came back up again, in which time they, uh, they called me one night. And I knew like, you don't call anybody at night in the finance industry. I said, that means like, don't come back to work tomorrow. And she was calling my home, which my sister answered the phone. And they called my sister back. She said, well, you tell Jason, whatever he does, tell him don't come to work tomorrow before he talks to me. So I knew it had run its course. But the interesting thing was they fought for me because I worked so hard. But uh, I kind of manipulated getting that job a little bit. But um, and then I had the fortunate opportunity to come to the hospital where I was just transparent with them. I was like, I was at a point where I was just like, you know what? Uh, either they're going to hire me or they're not. Like, um, but I'm not 
and and no offense, but I'm like, I'm not going to do, I was, my probation officer was telling me, oh, he gave me this list of companies to go and apply for. And it was like being a laborer in a lineman company, uh, being a laborer at a yard service. And I'm like, that's, that's not what I'm going to do with my business econ degree. And I mean, I've hustled, I've done all those things, but that's, that's like, that's not where my mindset was uh, at the time. Um, I wanted a professional role where I could kind of, I wanted to run a company, quite frankly. Man, this is like the catch me if you can story, but in a black man doing it. Wow. Yeah, I'm sitting here like, I just watched that movie Friday. I'm like, you kind of like to catch me if you can set up. But um, before I let you go, man, like I said, we talk about generational wealth, finance and business, and you know, you basically are in all those arenas. So I, what I want to ask you now, I didn't ask you, I asked you if you did stocks, but what about you doing any real estate? So I'm, I'm not really heavy into it. I do have a few uh, rental properties. And I think, yeah, you know, that's, that's about the degree that I'm involved. I think you can't go wrong with real estate. Typically, it's going to always, you know, kind of, I mean, you, you have situations where, you know, the uh, value can decline, but for the most part, uh, you know, it's going to always incline. I, my, my whole idea is I've got three kids and I want to be able to leave them. Uh, that's the kind of wealth I want to leave them. I, I tell, always tell them, I said, daddy, go, I'm going to live good while I'm here. Uh, I don't believe in uh, saving everything, if you will, and, and leaving it all behind for people to, to fight over. I believe in living a good life. If you work hard, you should enjoy the fruits of your labor and not wait until you're 70 years old and then decide to start traveling. So, but I, I jokingly tell my kids, like, I'm not going to leave, you know, you won't have any money because I'm going to spend all mine. Uh, but I do, uh, that's my plan is to continue to buy properties. I just don't, I've got a brother that's got a, a whole slew of properties, but it can be very taxing uh, in terms of uh, managing it, unless you want to work with a management company or somebody like that. I, I try to reduce my overhead by doing a lot of the maintenance and things like that on my own and kind of managing my properties myself. Uh, so that kind of limits my ability to kind of broaden my portfolio. And who knows, as time comes, goes along, I may broaden it a little bit more, but I've been very fortunate with the properties that I've had to have good tenants. Um, I've know there's some horror stories out there, but the horror stories, I, I wouldn't let them. I've had some, but not catastrophic, um, where things kind of torn up the building. I've had a tenant that lived in one of my houses for almost a year without paying, just playing the, uh, the uh, legal game. Uh, with me, but uh, it was a learning experience, definitely a learning experience, but not one that maybe just kind of want to totally disengage with it. But uh, but yeah, I I do believe investing in properties and property ownership is is always going to be fortunate, especially if you can see the future or kind of anticipate what's going to happen. You know, uh, there's a neighborhood right here adjacent to our hospital. It's a whole it's called Springfield and the homes are probably like they most of these homes were built in the late 1800s and they're re uh remodeling them and I mean the the value of properties have like quadruple over the past three four years I wish I could have known wish I'd have known that probably back in my 20s because uh back then some of these properties I could have bought them literally for the money in my pocket and now it's like even a bone, these, these, these buildings just stripped down to nothing. You know, you're still paying a quarter of a million bucks for them. You got to put another quarter of a million in it. But, you know, once you do that, the value is like astronomical, but I wish I could have went by and bought a whole street 30 years ago. 
Okay. And just talk about those rental properties. You know, what type of money did you actually it's a two-part question? It's uh, I want to ask you, you know, what type of money you put down for each property? Were you able to just take the money that you made off one property and put that in the other? And then I'll ask the other question on the back end. Go ahead. So basically what I've done is uh is the I've lived in all the properties. So as I move, I I converted to a rental property. Uh and so I've uh, I bought buy them all as residential and then I converted into the other two as a as an investment in like and my plan is if all works well I'll do the same with the home that I have now I know there's a the um, Airbnb model is very lucrative right now I haven't subscribed to that yet but I know quite a few folks that uh like that uh, model it, it could be very lucrative but for me it's just I, I just don't give up the property once I buy it I keep it at least I, at least I don't plan to give up anything if I can uh for you know if I can afford it uh some of course some neighborhoods or some communities don't permit that so I'll as I'm purchasing I, I do that with that concept in mind you know some deed restricted communities they don't want you to have the rent they don't want renters or whatever uh in the community so you've kind of got to think through that if that's the approach that you're going to take at least from my vantage point when you're when you're buying if you want to buy with long-term uh, plans of kind of uh, renting at a later date, you got to think about those HOAs and what kind of rules and guidelines they may have in place um, if that's the approach you're going to take. Yeah, and I see you uh, you on the HOA board as well, man. I, like I said, man, you on at least 10 boards. I think you on more than 10 boards, man. So, you know, but before I let you go, man, you know, being on all these boards, you know, like we had an officer on a couple of weeks ago that said, listen, when he gets off work, he has a relaxation strategy to kind of turn it off around the family. I mean, you know, you have what three teenagers and a wife. So, you know, when you get home, you should, you know, how do you turn that off? So I'll tell you what, what I do is uh, when I, when I, I have my time of day for, and I've got my rules for each, each organization that I'm a part of. My job alone is very demanding, very taxing, but um, I, I set parameters with my team that's um, the same thing I do with the different boards. So before I join a board, initially when I was joining boards, it was more like, uh, please, please, please add me to the board. You know, I want to be on the board. Like, and it was more me selling myself to them. I think now I bring a lot more value to a board. So with my experience on boards and just my ex professional experience, now many of them come after me. And so with that, it gives me the, the, the latitude to kind of tell them to set rules. like. This is my commitment level. This is what you're going to get from me. And then we kind of work through it to make sure that it's going to align. So there more recently, there's a organization that I'm I'm very, I'm very much supportive of. In fact, I support them financially. And I was approached about joining their board, but we couldn't, we just weren't going to see eye to eye on the commitment level and the work level, if you will. Like I, I'm more of a, it is not that I'm too good for it. it just to be clear, it's just that. One, as you see, I can't do all things for everybody, so I restricted. Like, I'm not going to be your boots on the ground board member where I'm out. I'm not going to be handing out pamphlets and fundraising and things of that nature. I, I'm going to be more of an advisor. I'll bring resources. Uh, typically, my 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 uh, what I brought, I like to provide is connections. Uh, I'm very uh, well connected with individuals in the community uh organizations and so that's where i see myself as a resource for a board but in terms of like beyond those routine board meetings 
I'm not like every day going to be like out beating the pavement, trying to uh, manage your board. For example, my even my HOA, I'm the board president and I'm very vocal with the uh, community. Like I'm not, if somebody's grass isn't cut right, I'm not the one that's going to be knocking on their door. That's my, my role as a board president. I am the board president. We have an agency that manages that. And I expect that agency to manage it. And if I get to a point where I have to manage that agency as a, uh, like I'm a, a, a leader within that agency, then my role as the board president is to look at another agency. I'm not going to, I'm not the guy that's going, I believe in delegating, allowing people to do their job. And so that permits, gives me the ability to kind of serve on multiple roles and not just totally own that board or that company, if you will, that makes sense. Great information, man. That's why I said in my intro, I think you won like 10 boards, but I'm looking like it's more like 12 or 13, man. This brother's coming on here, Jason Hardwick. But like I said, this brother's got a master's in health administration. He's currently the division director of operations and patient experience. So this brother's getting money. And that's what I want to talk about before I let you go. We got a few more minutes, man. So when you get your check, you know, some jobs these days pay pensions. I did hear you say you were a 401k specialist. So I want to talk about that because I there's a lot of what I call new generation brothers where they're heavy into the stocks, heavy into crypto, their Roth IRAs on point. And then I say, well, hey, man, you don't have no 401 Oh, man, 401k played out. You see people losing their 401k. Being a 401k specialist, just talk about that because I feel like as the generations uh, evolve, the 401ks are sliding out of the conversation. So I, I'll tell you Jason's personal uh, perspective. So I was a 401k benefit specialist when I was at Merrill Lynch. I'm not a 401k specialist, if you will, just to be clear. But I'll tell you, 401k, if your employer is matching it, is probably the best investment, financial investment out there. On the you can't lose from free money. So like my employer matches 6% up to 6% of your salary, dollar for dollar. So if, if you're putting 6,000 bucks a year in it, that's your 6% of your salary, they're putting $6,000 in there. That's free money. If you do nothing with it, but get the free money and put it in a, a money market and do no, no uh, you know, investing or whatever, it's still free money. What other investment out there guarantees you? It's a guaranteed investment that guarantees you you know, 100% matching, whatever you invest. So you're getting 100% return on your investment. And you also have access to it. I mean, there's rules, of course, and guidelines. Access. So I, I don't know if, if it's available, I would take advantage of it. Now, I know some people don't like to have their money caught up in it because you can't access it without penalties or what have you. But I think you still can. You can borrow from your 401k and pay yourself back, you know, and Take advantage of the interest payments versus going to the banking bar. I just I just believe uh, 401k in comparison to a pension. I mean, you know, pension is the easy is is probably much more preferred because it's kind of guaranteed money. Uh, but many in many cases, pensions are just non-existent anymore. I just uh, I but I do believe if your employer is matching, I don't care if you make twenty five thousand dollars a year or two hundred thousand dollars a year one should minimally capture 100% of that matching dollars from your employer. Other than that, you're leaving free money on the table. But what other avenues financially would you say that Black men, we're just not 
either investing or we're not paying attention to that's lucrative? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, and, and, I'm, and I don't know that it's necessarily our fault, but I'm in the healthcare realm. And I think when you look at supply chain, I think as African-Americans as a whole, not just African-American men and companies owned by African-Americans is significantly underrepresented. Uh, when you look at healthcare supply chain, and I mean, any hospital, our, our hospital is, is pretty uh, nice in size in terms of the numbers. We've got about 700 beds combined, which is usually the bar that you use to kind of measure the size of a hospital. But we spend in excess of a couple billion dollars a year in supply chain, and even more than that, when we're building new hospitals, like right now, we're building three new freestanding EDs, we're building a new inpatient tower. I think, and, and this is a task to individuals such as myself, is to better engage uh, minorities, uh, to include African-American men and women in that supply chain circle and getting them prepared for it. And what, and I'll tell you one of the biggest uh, hiccups that we find, and even for myself, is I try to equitably identify vendors, is many times we don't have our ducks in a row. And what I mean by that typically is insurance. In most cases, to do business with us, no matter what it is. If you're doing pressure washing, for example, you're keeping our, I don't know, we've probably got four football spaces of concrete around this campus that has to stay clean and maintained. And even something as simple as pressure washing the concrete, keeping it clean, you've got to have a million dollars of liability insurance. And many of our, uh, many of us, uh, we just don't invest in that. We get the bare minimum liability insurance so that we can come out to your house and say, yeah, I'm covered, but that coverage is probably $25,000. If they blow, you know, they tear up some, they tear up the awning on your house and that awning's 50 grand, they can't even, their insurance can't even cover repair. So the point I'm getting at is, is I think we've got to look long range uh, one, the opportunity has got to be there. And many of the, the, the organizations, I'll say the hospitals are not in that place where they're aggressively seeking out minority-owned businesses. But for those who do aspire to do such, such as myself, business owners have to be prepared. They've got to have their ducks in a row, have those insurances, have all of their business licensing in whatever state, county, do their homework. Because today that I put out that R that request for proposal you can't go get all your stuff together now oh yeah man i know how to uh you know drive shuttle buses oh i can start a business i can go and buy uh you know some buses i can go and get licenses. i mean you, you can't come to the table on promises you know and i'll tell you during the pandemic the pandemic was a great opportunity uh for smaller companies to get into the healthcare realm and compete because a lot of the barriers, a lot of the red tape was kind of reduced just out of desperation and necessity. Something as simple as, I remember I needed some paper bags. We needed paper bags because early in the pandemic, we were passing out masks and asking staff because it was such a shortage. We were asking staff to reuse them. Now you put them on and you throw them away and you put another one on, but we were asking them to reuse them. So we needed simple paper bags for them to put them in to kind of preserve them when they would leave work and go home and put it back on the next day. And just something as simple as that, like I need, I had to find a source because most companies were not sourcing to new vendors. So if I wasn't already buying that product from them, they were like, nah, uh, -uh. they were trying to take care of their regular customers. 
And so I had to be very unique in different things and trying to source supplies. But um, we were able to get people in, but now it's kind of back to the norm almost. You got to have all your ducks in a row and be prepared to compete. And I know it costs money. Carrying out a million dollar liability insurance um, may not be what's at the forefront of someone's mind, but if you got to, if you want to cut yards, our, just for example, our lawn contract is about $400,000 a year. Now, granted, you're not pocketing $400,000 a year, but I'm pretty confident you can pocket it. I mean, everybody's in business to make money. So, I mean, it, that, it, it, that goes without saying. We don't contract. I would be concerned if you come in and, and significantly underbid a contract because then, I mean, you're going to cheat me somewhere. Either you're not going to do what I'm asking you to do or the product is going to be substandard. I, you know, um, anybody would look at that. And at the same time, you can't overcharge. I mean, we kind of have an idea. Uh, there's a bunch of industry standards out there and calculations on whatever it is we're trying to get done. But it's hard to get those minority businesses, which in many cases are smaller, to compete uh, because they don't have all of those pieces in place. And many of them just, they don't even have a license or the insurance to start with. They just kind of, oh, I cut grass or I paint, uh, whatever that is. Um, I'll t one of the... I've got a guy that actually comes and takes our pallets. We go through a significant amount of pallets a day. And this guy, basically, he makes $6 a pallet to come and pick them up. And I'm talking about he's picking up somewhere between probably 30, 40 pallets a day. And even though it's like, it doesn't seem like it's something big, but when you, he took that on, so he's picking up those pallets. We've got three different major buildings that he picks up pallets from. And he's eating our, my main location. He's picking up about 30 or 40 a day. Between all of them, he's probably getting somewhere between about 50 to 60 pallets a day, Monday through Friday. And then as a result of that, he's picked up two other hospitals here because they didn't have a source to outsource him. So now his business has grown. And I know looking at what somebody drives doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a reflection of their prosperity, but he went from driving a rinky-dink truck. Now he's got a real nice Dodge 2500 with the panoramic roof. And I'm watching past my office. I'm like, man, life must be good. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's he was in the right place at the right time. And even something that a lot of people don't think about, but I need those pallets moved every day because they contribute to pests and other things. And it's just, I just don't have a place to store them on my trash dump. So something as simple as that, the average person's not walking around carrying liability insurance on their mom and pop business and, and it stops, it prohibits me from doing business with them. Thank you, Jason Harwood, for coming on Black Men Sundays. You had a great time? Yes, sir, absolutely. Definitely, man. Wait, I, I just want to let all the brothers out there know you have a felony, don't be discouraged. Look at this brother's story right here. Listen to this brother's story. Y'all might want to run this back a couple times. He gave a lot of gems. So Jason Hardwick, thanks for coming on Black Men Sunday. Brother, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Check it.